Now, this weekend, I want to talk about this subject called the folly of the wisest man. And when you think about the wisest man in the Bible, you cannot run away uh, from the fact that it is referring to King Solomon. And King Solomon is often considered the wisest man that did the dumbest thing, okay? And what is without doubt, though, is that he reigned over the nation of Israel in her zenith. And, but, you know, um, but that legacy didn't last very long. It lasted only as long as he was alive. And the moment he died, you know, the kingdom of uh, Israel began to disintegrate. And this, of course, had to do with judgment that God executed on Solomon for the fact that he took many, many pagan wives and these wives led Solomon astray into the worship of various gods and idolatry. And the Bible actually tells us that Solomon had something like 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubine, okay? I think that that is really untenable. And these uh, women turned his heart away from God. Now, well, this is really sad. And one of the, I, I think one of the very uh, um, devastating com uh, commentaries that God made concerning Solomon is found in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9, where, you know, the commentary uh, says this, So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Now, this is such a travesty, isn't it? That God would literally appear, you know, in, you know, to, before Solomon and, and he had this great encounters and twice this happened and God commanded him, warned him specifically about this area and yet despite of the specific warning, Solomon still fell in this. And I think that this is something that we need to take heed to in our own lives as well. You see, when you examine the life of King Solomon, you, you can see that there are mistakes that Solomon uh, made and that wasn't just relating to uh, the multiple wives that he had or, the or, or his embrasure of idolatrous uh, worship. There are, very little, there are various little notations and commentaries that we find in Scripture that uh, clues us in on the fact that there were many little foxes that were running amok in Solomon's life and these little foxes eventually led to his downfall. Now, I want to consider Solomon's error and folly, particularly in relation to his construction of the temple of God and his various other building projects, okay? And the reason I want to do so and is because I had this very unusual experience two years ago in the year 2019. Now, I have to say this beforehand that I'm not a dreamer, okay? When I sleep, I just sleep through, okay? And, um, and that's a good night's sleep for me, okay? And, um, but, you know, unlike Pastyang, Pastyang is, is, is really, God speaks to him a lot in dreams and many times he shares his dreams with us and it's remarkable the accuracy and the specificity that is given in the dreams that Pastyang has. But I really don't have dreams. And, you know, incidentally, the Bible also tells us that the old man uh, shall dream dreams, the young man shall see visions. Again, okay, I'm not that young anymore. But, you know, I, but God usually speaks to me through visions and hardly ever through dreams. I maybe have a dream in, you know, every couple of years. That's how it is for me. But two years ago in 2019, I had this very unusual experience in which I was in a dream and I found myself in a council of sages a wise man in this dream. And this council of wise men consists of men and they, they all had long white beards and each of them were, uh, you know, clothed in these beautiful white garments. And as I looked at them, they appeared as though that each of them had uh, expertise in a specific area of matters. And one of these, these sages approached me and began to speak to me. And interestingly, he spoke to me about buildings. 
okay? And to summarize what he said to me, essentially he said to uh, something to this extent to me that, you know, um, that, he, you know that he was really puzzled by our, my, our generation of pastors who are always so preoccupied with buildings, big buildings, extravagant building projects. And then he said this to me, he said, you will, need, you will have need of buildings and you will be provided with buildings, but don't get preoccupied with them, use them use them, but don't let them become the focal point. And then I'm hearing this sage speaking to me, and while he's speaking to me, the voice of God comes in the dream over this voice, and then he, the, the, the Lord said this, the Lord said, Lip, wake up now and record this dream now, okay? And I remember clearly in the dream, I said to the voice of God, I said, Lord, no, 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 this man has got more to tell me, let me listen. When I wake up, don't worry, I remember what he says, you know? And the Lord reiterated again, he says, Lip, wake up now and record this dream. So I woke up, I took my phone, I was beside my bed, I opened a little note and I began to type out the dream as I, had, as, as I can recall the dream. And while I'm typing this, the voice of God remains no, no longer in the dream, but in my, in my you know, uh, while I'm fully awake, and the voice of God just begins to speak to me. And the Lord said this to me, He says, Lip, I'm going to send you a series of mentors, just like this sage, and they will speak to you. And whenever I send one of them to you, I want you to pay very close attention to what they say to you. You know, and so, and, and out of this dream, you know, it really triggered my interest in Solomon because Solomon, more than anyone else, is associated with building projects. Now, many of us, we look at Solomon and we only remember or recall the fact that, hey, he's the one who built the temple of, uh, of God in Jerusalem. And in fact, we call it the Temple of Solomon, right? But if you really look into the Word of God and the account of his life, he didn't just build the temple, he built a huge number of buildings, cities, and storehouses. Now, just to give you a little flavor of what he built, he built the Temple of Jer in Jerusalem, he built his own house, which is called Solomon's house, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon, he built the Hall of Pillars, he built the Hall of Judgment, he built an incredible house for Pharaoh's daughter, he built two pillars, bronze pillars, and he named them Achin and uh, Boaz. He built the sea and the oxen. Ten carts, ten lavers for the use in the, you know, in the temple. And then he built the city of Milo, the walls of Jerusalem, the city of Hazor, Megiddo, Giza, Lower Beth, Horon, uh, Baalath, Petmore, and many other storage cities. I mean, this guy was on a constant building spree. And not only were they buildings of functionality, there was an extravagance to these buildings. And the extravagance of the buildings is recorded for us in the books of 1 Kings as well as 2 Chronicles. Now, in the midst of the records of Solomon's building projects, you'll find that there are these little subtle commentaries that is written and given to us, lines that the scripture records for us. And it is these commentaries that really clues us in on what is not obvious on the surface. You see, when somebody has such a tremendous building project, it's easy for us to look on the buildings and see the splendor of the buildings and not see what is underneath. And it is this, these little commentaries that it shows us that the divine does not just look on the outward, but but God is looking and seeing what is happening beneath the surface of the extravagance on the outside. And I want to point out three things to us. The first I want to point out is that Bible actually tells us very clearly the allocation of time that is given for these buildings. Now in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us this, that it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. In other words, Solomon took 20 years to build two buildings the house of the Lord as well as his own house. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, we're, we're given a further understanding of this where it says King Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. So 
do the mathematics, okay? What this means is that Solomon took seven years to build the house of God and he took 13 years to build his own house. In other words, he took twice as much time to build his own house than what he invested in God's house. I don't know how you read this. I don't know if you just think that, hey, maybe, you know, it was a more complicated project. Maybe he put in more effort into building, you know, more laborers that were there. But to me, it simply means this, that Solomon gave more attention to building his own house than he did in investing in God's work. Now, I think that this is quite a contrast to David, his father. Now, David had many flaws. David had many weaknesses, and his weaknesses are also recorded for us in the Bible. But there is one thing about David. The one thing that David was concerned of is the Lord. God was always the one thing with David. God was always the first thing with David. And though David was not the one permitted to build the dwelling place for the Lord, he made sure that he provided for his building out of his own wealth. Foremost on the heart of David was always the issue of God and his house. Amen. Now, I think that there is a wonderful parallel, uh, pa- uh, parable that's given to us in the New Testament that is found in Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to verse 21. And it is titled the parable of the rich fool. Isn't that interesting? And I think that if there is a picture of a king who is a rich fool, that would be Solomon. And, you know, and the parable concerns a rich man who had this wealth coming into him and he was focused on his wealth accumulation in this earthly life. And this man prospered so much that he began to think, hey, let me begin to build bigger barns. Let me tear down what I have. Let me build bigger uh, storage places so that I can store the wealth that is coming into me. And the Lord considered this man's attitude and his pronouncement over this man is that he was a fool. That very night, the Lord would take the man's life and what would come of all the wealth that he had accumulated. It would all be gone overnight. And here's the punchline from this parable. It says, Jesus said this, So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. I think this is really, really poignant and important for us to understand. Just this last Monday, I was running. And, uh, and nowadays, I really try to make every effort that whenever I'm running, you know, um, I, I would just focus on praying and spending time with God and seeking and asking the Lord what He'll say to me. And on Monday, as I was running, and I began to ask the Lord, Lord, speak to me. And the Lord began to speak to me. And the Lord showed me my own finances. And not just that, He showed me the finances of Cornerstone. And the Lord asked me a simple question. He says, and He said this, on the day that He returns, when He comes back, you know, um, what would it be like if my bank account or the church's bank account is full? Okay? And, and, and you know, there's money in the bank account, so much money. You know, now I, I knew at that point of time that God was not telling us that we should be careless in our finances. We need to be good stewards of our finances. I fully understand that. But I also knew this, that I, that, that I wouldn't want to have accumulated so much wealth that by the time he returns, you know, I've not actually utilized the resources that he's given to me for the work of the kingdom. You know, that there's one thing that you need to understand. There is a moment where all the value and all the wealth that we have accumulated will instantaneously become useless. The Bible tells us that we are to work while it is day. In the same manner, there is a daytime where we are permitted to use our resources for God's kingdom and for the kingdom's sake. But then there is a night that comes, whether it is the Lord's return or whether we are called back to, uh, to be home with, with God, whichever comes earlier. The moment that 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 happens, it doesn't matter how much wealth you have, all the wealth becomes instantaneously useless. And that's something that that just stunned me. 
And I said to God, Lord, by the end of my life, let me have used all the resources that you have given me. Let me keep nothing in reservation, but let everything be given to the Lord. Amen. I love the story of John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist Church. And what we don't realize that this man lived a couple of hundred years ago, and we think that, hey, every minister of those times were, you know, church, uh, poor church mouses, and they had no money. But the truth is, John Wesley was a very rich man. His ministry garnered enormous financial support, and he became a very wealthy man because of the books and resources that he's written, right? And I mean, if you look, consider the inflation and the amount that this man made. Um, some people estimate him to be a multi-millionaire in those days. But you see, the thing about John Wesley is this, he made a decision early in his life that it took an average of 28 pounds for a man to live, you know, to survive through the years, through, through a single year. Annually, if you have an income of 28 pounds, you are good for the year. And so John Wesley at an early age decided that 28 pounds is all that he would keep for himself and everything else would go off. In the first year, he made 30 pounds and he gave away 2 pounds and kept 28 pounds. In the next year, he made 40 pounds and he gave away the, you know, the, the extra and he lived off 28. I mean, all through the life of John Wesley, he always kept to an annual budget of 28 pounds and he gave away everything. By the time of his death, it is well known that he left behind hardly a single penny to his name. But what he did leave behind is a good library of books, a well-worn clergy uh, gown, and oh, by the way, let's not forget the whole Methodist church that is still alive till today. Amen? And that's the kind of life God wants us to have. He's calling us to. The second issue with Solomon was that he had an incomplete Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9, you know, we are told this, that nothing was in the Ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, what we are being told here is that when the temple was completed, Solomon's temple was completed, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, but it was an incomplete Ark. It only, inside this Ark, there was only two tables of stones, and these were the tables of stones on which the commandments were inscribed on by God. Now, there are two other articles that were missing, the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that had budded. These two things were missing. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the central piece of furniture in the worship of the Lord because it represents the very presence of God, right? Everything was built around the Ark of the Covenant. You know, in the Tabernacle of Moses, it was in the very center of the holiest place. This is the most revered item in the whole tabernacle. In the days of David, David was so focused on the Ark of the Covenant, the first thing he did as he took Jerusalem was to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And this he did at great cost. At great cost. And at the same time, you see, the Ark of the Covenant was a piece of furniture that, had, that was associated with three other items. The two tables of stone, a golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. This is found not just in the Old Testament, but in the, in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3 to 4, where it says, Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. You see, the tablets of stones, they represent the commandments, the Word of God. The pot of manna represents our relational walk with God, the intimacy, and the rod that budded speaks about something that is dead, that has come back alive. It's the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the danger, that we can have churches, we can become a church that preaches the Word of God week in and week out, but does not have the power of God. 
and that is not displayed. And not only that, worse still, there's no intimate walk with Jesus. There's no revelation coming out of a proximity of intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that must not become a description of our churches. Now consider also what this manna means in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. And Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. You see, the manna is given by the Lord. The manna is something that is hidden. The manna is not readily available. The manna is given to those who have overcome in their lives. What this means is that all these three items are required in our lives because you've got to realize this in the New Testament, the focal point is not on a physical temple. Let me say this. Biblical prophecy seems to indicate that the temple, a physical temple, will be rebuilt in Jerusalem in the last days and the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, will be reinstated. Now, many Christians, they consider this prophecy and they come to the wrong conclusion that it is God's agenda and God's approval on the rebuilding of that temple. Now, what I need for us to understand is this, that God is merely declaring an event that is going to come in the future as an indicator, as a sign of the times, so that we would know that there is something of the last days. But it is clear that this is not to God's pleasure. How can it be that Jesus came and became the one sacrifice for all mankind and then for God to approve for Israel to go back to animal sacrifices and temple worship? It does not make sense. Jesus said that the worship of God will not be centered around Jerusalem nor the temple, but instead the Father searches for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen. You see, God wants temples, yes, but they're not physical temples. He's after each of us. We are the church. We are the body of Jesus Christ. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when we begin to talk about the Ark of the Covenant today and its three contents, we're not talking about a physical item. We're talking about something that is spiritual. The Lord wants His laws written not on tables of stone anymore. That is in the past. God now wants to write His laws on tables of our heart. And Isaiah the prophet, foreseeing this in the future, prophesied about this. Amen. And that's what the ta tables of stone represent. And God wants to give us a rod of authority in our lives where we will pray for the sick and the sick shall recover. We will cast out demons. We will raise the dead. We shall multiply food. This is resurrection power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit, that power is in us. Amen. And finally, you know, the part of manner is that God wants us to learn to walk intimately with Him to find Him in the secret place, in the hidden recesses of our hearts. And then he will, and there He would give us hidden manner, you know, to know Him, to understand who He is, and to help us walk and overcome His life. Those are the elements. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be found inside of us. And all these three elements must be present in our lives. And we must not settle only for tables of stone. We must not settle just to come week after week to listen to the Word of God being preached. We must not settle just to, you know, have the Word of God and not the power and the benefit, the fullness of what God wants for us in our lives. Amen. The third thing, the third uh, issue that was there in Solomon's life is that he had a failure in which he failed to see true beauty. 
There was something about his perspective, his eyes that were flawed, that he could not see beauty where God really has placed beauty. And one of these little details that's often overlooked when we think about the life of Solomon is that he had a very, very close friend by the name of Hiram. And Hiram was a Gentile and he was the king of Tyre, okay? Now, don't think about that Michelin guy with all the tires around him, okay? But Tyre is an ancient city or an ancient nation uh, in the Old Testament, okay? And as you examine this name, as you look through this name, you know, I, you might get a little bit confused as you search for this name because, um, and I want to just quickly clarify this for you, because there are three persons in Solomon's life that are all named Hiram or the variation of Huram, okay? And the three persons are as follows. Number one, of course, is Hiram, the king of Tyre. The second is another man called Hiram, and he's a, a craftsman that specializes in working on bronze. His father is from the uh, city of Tyre, and his mother is from the tribe of Naphtali, and his name is found in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 13. Now, there's a third person, Huram, and he's also a master craftsman, but he works not just with bronze, but gold, silver, iron, linen, and he was a master engraver, and his parentage is slightly different. Now, some people think that this Huram and Hiram uh, is the same, okay? But I think personally that uh, it might be different, okay? And his uh, Huram is mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 13, okay? But the person of interest that I want to look at is Hiram, the first one, the king of Tyre. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 10, we are told this, that because king, the king of Tyre provided all the laborers and all the workers and all the resources, in order to repay him, Solomon gave 20 cities from the land of Israel to the king of Tyre, to Hiram. And specifically, it was 20 cities from the region of Galilee. Now, the reason this is given is most likely because Galilee was in close proximity to the nation of Tyre. Now, the funny thing is Hiram comes and he goes and he inspects these cities and he looks at these cities and he scoffs at them. He actually dislikes these cities and he names them, he calls them Kabul, C-A-B-U-L, meaning good for nothing. He says, why are you giving me these worthless cities, these good for nothing cities? In 2 Chronicles chapter 8, that we are told separately that Hiram in the end returned these cities back to Solomon because he despised, he did not desire these cities. Now, the thing though is this, you've got to understand this, in the region of Galilee is really on the outskirts of the nation of Israel. It covers regions that belongs to the tribes of Naphtali, the Zebulun, as well as to Dan. And while this region had some natural beauty to its landscape, it really didn't feature greatly in the overall scheme of things in the nation of Israel. It was the backwaters. It was the moondogs. It had neither political importance nor economic significance. And that's why Solomon looked at these places and says, yeah, I can give them off to Hiram. And Hiram saw it and says, hey, these are worthless cities. And this perception of Galilee continued all the way to the days of Jesus Christ. And, you know, in the days of Jesus, the people asked the question in, what, in John 7, 52, are you also from Galilee? It was derogatory. Search and look for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. And they're saying, hey, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Galilee. This is a place that is unloved, unimportant, not to be desired. It's a place that is labeled worthless. But you know, in all of the Old Testament, there is one verse in scriptures that foretold of the significance of Galilee. And that is found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 2. And I want to read you the mention of this, the reference of this Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. And it is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 to 16. And it says this, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, by the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region, the shadow of death, light has dawned. Now that's amazing that God has chosen a place that really is despised and causes light to come forth. Now, you know this, you know, Galilee's mentioned something like 70 over times in the Bible, but 67 times it is mentioned in the New Testament. Most of the time, it is not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. I want to draw a parallel for us. Did you know that Odin Katong, this building that God has given to us here in Katong, that it came out in the newspapers, I believe it was in the Chinese newspapers, just uh, before we bought this building. It came out, it was considered one of the 20 ugliest and most worthless buildings in Singapore. Did you know that? Did you know that that's what it was? That's what people, the, na- the, the world considered this property to be. And yet, God wasn't looking at the beauty or the, or the value of the building on the outside, isn't it? He called us to come and occupy this place because he knew and he was looking for the fact that Messiah's light is going to come and shine in a place and transform this place. God is always looking for the worthless places. God is always looking for the places that people have discarded because he wants to bring his light into those places. And so here's Galilee. An amazing thing is Solomon, the wisest man, the wisest man, the smartest chap. He couldn't see value in this region. And he even offered to give it away to a Gentile king. And that's just awful. That's just terrible. The wisest man had not the eyes to see what God was going to do, that Messiah, the light of Israel, is going to someday walk in this region and he was going to base his ministry out of Galilee. You know, Jesus wasn't just called the Son of Man. He wasn't just called the Son of God. But in many times, he was called Jesus of Galilee. In the Old Testament, a place that is called Kabu, worthless, good for nothing. Jesus says, man, I'm going to put my name on this place. Jesus of Galilee. You see, God wants to clothe our eyes with the ability to see true beauty. In many ways, this is what Cornerstone is called to do. I mean, we've been looking for a property 15 years. We've looked at brand new buildings. We've looked at beautiful buildings. And the funny thing is God never calls us to a beautiful place. God never calls us to a beautifully fabricated place. But He always brings us to these little places that nobody else wants. I remember once we were in a meeting with uh, URA, you know, and they were talking about our building. And we asked the person a, a question. I said, and, and she's a lady, and says, you know, when on, on the weekends when you want to bring your family out uh, to eat, to shop, do you ever think to yourself, mm, today I want to bring my pl- family to a nice place. We're going to go to Odean Katong Shopping Centre. <laughs> Nobody thinks like that, right? I mean, Singapore doesn't think about coming to this place at all, right? And yet God chooses this place. God calls us to these places. Places that are not posh, they're not polished, they're not polite. And our call as a church is to see beauty when others are unable to see Our call is to see the potential for the light of Jesus Christ to shine over dark places, places where the shadow of death has had sway over. And you know, we just, uh, you know, signed the option to purchase a new building. And I know Pastor is going to be talking about this and doing a series on this building and presenting it to the church. But I want to preempt and prepare you that it's going to be a place where there's going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle. It's not going to look beautiful. But this is our call. This is what God has called us to. Even Solomon had no eyes to see. May it be that we would have eyes to see that this is the Galilee Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a place that the world labels Kabul. And yet, it is in this place that the light of Jesus Christ will shine. My final thoughts for us this weekend is this. The flaws in Solomon wasn't a lack of wisdom. He had a lot of wisdom. He had a lot of smarts. 
He knew how to calculate things. He knew how to see and decipher matters. He knew how to, he knew how to make decisions. But instead, it is these little things that were somehow missing in him. That absolute devotion to God, where God is number one in his life. There is something incomplete about his walk with God. Some missing pieces in the Ark of the Covenant. And finally, there was something about his sight, his eyes. He could not see deeper about the value of a place in which God has placed His hands upon. You know, and I, I pray that this is something that we would open our hearts to and we would see. We would open our eyes to and we would know, hey, absolute devotion to God. Let there be no missing part in our walk with God. May we have the eyes to see beauty when at this point there may not be beauty. Wherever you are in your rooms, in your living room or whatever it might be, I want to ask you if you just bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to lead us and I want to pray for us as we bring this service to an end. Father, I thank you, O Lord, that you are an amazing God, Lord. Your wisdom surpasses that of the wisdom of men, O God. Father, you have chosen the foolish things of this world, Lord, in order, Lord, to overcome, Lord, and to put to shame the wise that is in this world. Father, you have chosen the things that are ugly, Lord, that are unpolished, Lord. And you have chosen to lay beauty upon ashes, O God. You have chosen, Lord, to rebuild those old waste, waste places, O God, those places that are desolate, Lord, that you have chosen. Because you're a God of hope. You're a God, O Lord, of redemption, God. And Father, we ask you, Lord, to open our eyes, Lord. We ask you, O God, Lord, let there be nothing missing in our walk with you, Lord, that in each of our lives, Lord, all the articles of the covenant of the ark, Lord, well, the ark of the covenant will be present in us. We'll have nothing missing in our walk, Lord. And Father, we ask you, O oh God, Lord, that you give us such grace, such help, Lord, that we would walk fully and we would not allow the little foxes, the folly, Lord, to overtake our lives, Lord. May you speak to us, may you lead us, may you guide us. And now, God, I just speak your blessings over your congregation upon my brothers and my sisters who are tuning in. The blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in and joining us. Again, a big shout out to those of you who are on YouTube, Facebook, as well as Community Plus. Have a blessed weekend and we'll see you again very, very soon here in Cornerstone. Praise the Lord. Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.